Kevin Kelly is an author, editor, public speaker, and technologist who, whether you're aware of it or not, has been quietly shaping the world for the last 40 years. Tech geeks will know him as the founding executive editor of Wired Magazine, uh, but he's also a best-selling author. He got his first real shot of fame in 2010 with the release of a book called What Technology Wants and found further notoriety with the follow-up to that, another brilliant book titled The Inevitable. This episode, however, is about a little essay he wrote all before those books in 2008. It's called 1,000 True Fans. I've been talking about it the last two weeks, and today we're going to rip it apart and talk about what it has to do with marketing your restaurant. Stick around. There's an old saying that goes something like this. You'll only find three kinds of people in the world. Those who see, those who can see when shown, and those who will never see. This is Restaurant Strategy, a marketing podcast for everyone in the middle. Hey everyone, thank you again for tuning in. My name is Chip Close and this is Restaurant Strategy, a weekly marketing podcast dedicated entirely to the restaurant industry. So each week I choose a different topic. We explore that topic, we pick it apart. Hopefully by the end we come across some useful insights and then we always finish up with an assignment. I leave you with a short, actionable task, something you can do right away to start implementing some of the ideas and concepts we talk about here on the show. Because as I say week after week, I believe information is only as valuable as the action it inspires. Now, 1000 True Fans was written and published by a guy named Kevin Kelly back in 2008. And at the time, it hardly got any attention. But as the years went by, it spread the way all big ideas spread. One, to one, to one, to one. He wrote the essay when the internet, at least as we know it now, was still relatively young. Amazon was just transitioning from an online bookstore to an online everything store. Facebook was just at 100 million users, (laughs) relatively small compared to the 2 billion active monthly users it has today. Instagram was still two years away from launching. There was no Uber, no Airbnb, no Snapchat. Kickstarter had just gotten off the ground. The iPhone had just come out. And Netflix had only just unveiled their new streaming service the year before. So take a step back and let's notice just how much has changed in the decade or so since Kevin Kelly first made his observations and predictions in that essay. Everything he was noticing about our world was dead on. He was looking into the future, seeing how um, iPhones and streaming services were going to change the culture. He understood the inherent dangers and benefits of a connected world. He saw the content crush that was coming and understood even way back then what we as consumers, as humans, would eventually come to crave. So I first read the essay in 2011, and it rocked my world. It it fundamentally reshaped um, how I existed in the world as both a marketer and an artist, as an entrepreneur and a consumer. Now, I've been talking about it for the past few weeks and have shared the link in the show notes of the last two episodes. Um, I think the ideas presented in the essay are profound, and so I've shared the link once again and have decided to dedicate an entire episode to discussing it. So if you have already read it, thank you. I hope you've gotten as much out of it as I have. If you're sitting there listening to this podcast and you have a few minutes now, please hit the pause button and uh, go give it a read. 
For the rest of you, though, who uh, who listen when you're in the car or at the gym, no need to worry. We're going to break down all of the big points and um, and read from the essay as well as we go along. So, find your tribe. That's what marketers say. Your ideal customer. Your smallest viable audience. Your 1,000 true fans. Kevin Kelly starts his essay like this. To be a successful creator, you don't need millions. You don't need millions of dollars or millions of customers, not millions of clients or millions of fans. To make a living as a craftsperson, photographer, musician, designer, author, animator, app maker, entrepreneur, or inventor, you only need thousands of true fans. He goes on to explain that a true fan may also be referred to as a diehard fan, someone who would buy anything you release, someone who would drive 200 miles to hear you play, someone who gets what you're about and wants nothing more than to be a part of that. To be successful with this, he says, you only need to fit two criteria. Number one, on average, you need to produce enough material, enough content that you can make about $100 a year from each of your true fans. Number two, you need to find a way to sell directly to your consumer. Cut out the middlemen and create a relationship directly with your true fans so that when your 1,000 true fans pay you $100 a year, you are getting every piece of that. And if you're at home doing the quick math, you've probably already realized that that equals $100,000 a year, which by most measures is a good living. Now, the caveat, of course, is that you have to be content to make a living not a fortune. But the 1,000 number is not absolute. Adjust the numbers as needed. If you only need $75,000 a year, then maybe you only need 750 true fans. Or maybe you need less money from each of your fans. So 1,000 true fans spending $75 a year. Or maybe it's 2,000 fans spending $50 a year on the products you sell them. You get the picture. He makes three main points in his essay, but that's the crux of the first part. Find your true fans, your tribe, what Seth Godin calls the smallest viable audience. What specific group are you serving? Whose problems are you solving? Niche down. Get clear on exactly who your product is for. So I've done that with this podcast. I'm taking complicated marketing concepts and trying to simplify them, break them down into bite-sized, easy-to-understand chunks. The things we're talking about can be applied to any business. But rather than try to reach all small business owners, I chose to instead keep it narrowly focused to the restaurant industry. So number one, it made a lot of sense given my background in hospitality. But number two, this was the community I wanted to cultivate. There are more than enough people I can help and so that's my smallest viable audience. And I'm building a base of 1,000 true fans by showing up each and every week with this show. And so yes, While Kevin Kelly's theory of a thousand true fans may not translate exactly to the restaurant industry, the core idea is absolutely perfect for what we talk about here on this show. Remember, way back in episode number three of the podcast, we talked about how important it was to identify who your product was not for in order to figure out who your product is for. That's what Kevin Kelly is talking about. Ignore the large general and focus in on the small specific. Forget about the crowd, find your true fans. It's just another way of thinking about finding your audience. So a few examples. Now, most people have never been to Comic-Con, but the people who organize and operate Comic-Con are trying to cast a wide net. 
Their event is geared toward a very narrow, very specific group. Die-hard comic book fans. True fans. The kind of people who dress up as their favorite superhero and bring their copy of X-Men number one to get signed by the artist Jim Lee. They didn't need millions of fans, just a couple thousand true fans, to make Comic-Con a success. And now, of course, it continues to grow in popularity because they have stayed the course and kept a narrow focus. Abercrombie is not for adults. It's for teenagers. They pump the music, dim the lights, and spray liberal amounts of their cheap cologne around the register. Even if an adult walked by and liked something that they saw in the window, they wouldn't last a minute in the store because it's not for them. Le Bernardin is the most celebrated seafood restaurant in New York City, perhaps in the entire country. It's tucked in the ground floor of a towering midtown high-rise and caters to an affluent crowd. The experience is elevated and very expensive. It is not for everyone. The price insists on a limited audience. Small portions, a quiet room, attentive service, and very high prices. If you don't want those things, this is not for you. Kevin Kelly is urging you to hone in on those true fans, the audience who desperately wants exactly what you've got to offer them. So obviously, your finances may be built differently than what he's laying out in his essay, but the idea, the crux, the foundation of his essay is the same. Find your people, your tribe, the smallest viable audience, and serve them. Serve them specifically, deliberately, audaciously. Which brings us to the second piece of Kevin Kelly's essay, and that has to do with the relationship we have with our audience. So, hundreds of years ago, you knew every merchant who came to town. Trust. Yes, remember we spent an entire episode talking about trust a few weeks back. Well, trust became the most important aspect of doing business. Consumers had a one-on-one -on -one relationship with the people who provided them with food and clothing and other crucial products. Merchants were very careful to nurture those relationships because it was the only thing that mattered. And then, as the industrial age took hold, the products we bought were mass-produced by nameless, faceless workers in cold factories often hundreds of miles away. So now think about the products you love, the brands you love. Apple, Nike, Starbucks, Amazon, Netflix. I think it's safe to say that you know way more about them than they know about you. Hell, even our doctors know relatively little about us. Everything's locked up in a chart on the computer. But remember, that has not always been the case. And Kevin Kelly pointed out that the world is changing once again. In a way, he's saying that it's reverting back to that old model. In the second part of his essay, he says that there is now a premium put on connection. Building and nurturing relationships with your 1,000 true fans because those are the fans that will spread the word. The sneezers, as Malcolm Gladwell calls them in his book, The Tipping Point. The customers that will return to you time and time again and literally bring more people to your watering hole. In this new attention economy, the question really is, what sort of attention are you paying your customers? What sort of relationship are you building with them? In the essay, Kevin Kelly then talks about the importance of getting rid of the middlemen, right? Build an audience of fans so that when you write your next book, you can publish it yourself. You can reach out directly to your fans and tell them, hey, it's here. Thank you for your patience. I have that thing you've been waiting for. Now let's stop and think about that for a second. And then let's take it one step further. For hundreds of years, 
the publishing world has worked like this. You pitch a book to a publisher, they decide if they like it. If they think it can sell, if they, if they greenlight the project, they pay the author in advance of their royalties. So maybe that's $50,000 or $100,000 to go write the book that they pitched. And then when the book comes out, the writer gets a royalty, a small percentage of every copy sold. But what's happened just in the last 20 years is that the internet has created a direct avenue for consumers and merchants to deal directly with each other. In fact, now an author can sit back and say, hey, I want to make all that money myself. How do I do that? I'd love to write another book, but that'll take time. Time I would otherwise need to devote to pursuing paying jobs. So maybe writing a column for a, a magazine or a profile in the local newspaper. But if I didn't have to worry about that, they think, then yeah. Yeah, I guess I could write this next novel. Well, now we have sites like Kickstarter and Patreon and Indiegogo where artists can make a direct plea to their true fans for support. So they can write a letter to their 1,000 fans and say, hey, it's going to take me a year to write the next book in the series, and so I'm launching a Kickstarter campaign to raise $100,000. As soon as I hit that number, I can stop writing all these stupid BuzzFeed articles and get to writing the novel you're all dying to read. And that is a profound shift in the way commerce is done, in the way humans interact with each other. And we have technology to thank for that. For all the ills it's brought us, the internet has also brought us many good things as well. This, of course, being one of them. So then, if the relationship between the consumer and the merchant is changing again, reverting back to a, a trust-based interaction, then we need to also change the way we conduct our day-to-day. We can't keep pretending that we're in the industrial age when, when we could create a widget and just sell the widget to people who need the widget. No, these days, it's about nurturing a relationship, building trust. So let's think about what that means for restaurants. It means that each customer truly does matter. And lucky for us, we have actual face-to-face -face time with them. Compare that to the old factory model or even an e-commerce business where all of the interactions are done in a digital space. This podcast, for example, is weird. I'm talking directly to my fans, directly to the people who are interested in learning how to better market their restaurant. But I have limited contact with all of you. And that's partly why I love getting emails from you. It gives me some context to what I'm doing. It's proof that the weekly lessons are helping people. But in the restaurant, you can get feedback in real time. You can observe body language and hear the chatter in the room. You can touch the table to check in from time to time. Think about that. So usually the check back is a perfunctory step, something we feel um, compelled to do. But what if we challenged ourselves to really engage with our patrons in those interactions? Imagine the bond we could forge with our true fans. Imagine how much easier it would be to uh, identify those 1,000 true fans and then imagine what kind of effect that could have on your bottom line, simply because you'll be taking care of the people who most love what it is you're bringing to the world. Which of course brings us to Kevin Kelly's third point, and perhaps my favorite, because this is where he turns yet again, another 20 degree shift when he introduces Chris Anderson's theory of the long tail. So Anderson, for those who don't know, is the guy who actually took over for Kevin Kelly at Wired Magazine many, many years ago. Another important thought leader when it comes to art, commerce, and of course how technology intersects with our world. But what do we mean by the long tail? 
Well, he explains that it's the simplest way to explain the shape of the sales distribution curve. Whoa, okay, what the hell is a sales distribution curve? Relax, it's not nearly as complicated as it sounds, so stick with me a second. Kevin Kelly writes this. Early in the rise of the web, the large aggregators of content and products such as eBay, Amazon, Netflix, and iTunes noticed something interesting. The total sales of all the lowest-selling obscure items would equal or in some cases exceed the sales of the few best-selling items. So on the left side of the graph, we have the best-seller. And then as we tally each of the books that trailed that best-seller in sales, we stretch out to the right. So The Da Vinci Code was the number one book of 2003, and then The Lovely Bones, and then Good to Great, and then so on. There were thousands of other books released that year, so if we line them all up left to right with The Da Vinci Code on the left, and then The Lovely Bones to the right, and then Good to Great, and then four, and five, and so on, and so on, you would start to see the long tail. Thousands of books trailing behind The Da Vinci Code. But if we added up all of the sales from those other books, it would match or exceed the sales of just that one big-time bestseller. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, Kevin Kelly is careful to make two observations here. First, that sites like Amazon realized it was in their best interest to help sell those other books as well. Remember, they get a piece of every single book sold, so they don't care whether it's the number one bestseller or some obscure fantasy novel. The second observation, though, came when Kevin Kelly realized that you could divide up the long tail into smaller segments. And what he found is that there were a series of long tails. Yes, you could graph out the long tail for quote-unquote all book sales. But then you could also divide it down to fantasy books and sci-fi books and history books and art books and so on. So in the fantasy category, there was one mega hit followed by a long tail of lesser hits. In sci-fi, there was a mega hit followed by a long tail. So maybe the fantasy book was way, 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 way out on the long tail of the graph that showed all book sales for the year, but it was the number one seller in its own graph, the graph that showed fantasy book sales. And Kevin Kelly sat back and went, well, that's interesting. In fact, he had made another profound observation that the internet was making it easier for people to find things and connect with other like-minded individuals. So he continues in his essay, If you lived in any of the two million small towns of Earth, you might be the only one in your town to crave death metal music, or get turned on by whispering, or want a left-handed fishing reel. Before the web, you'd never be able to satisfy those desires. You'd be alone in your fascination. But now satisfaction is just one click away. Whatever your interests are, your 1,000 true fans are just one click away from you. And as far as I can tell, there is nothing, no product, no idea, no desire without a fan on the internet. Everything that's made or thought of can interest at least one person in a million, which is a low bar. Yet if only one person out of a million people were interested that's potentially 7,000 people on the planet. The trick then is to practically find those fans or more accurately to have them find you. So here's the thing, Kelly continues. Big corporations, big intermediates, the commercial producers 
are all under-equipped and ill-suited to connect with these 1,000 true fans. They are institutionally unable to find and deliver niche audiences and consumers. So if they own the hit on the left side of the graph, the long tail is wide open to you. Now, are you seeing what an important shift this is? This is what got me thinking about categories all those years back. Remember, way back in the beginning of this podcast, in episode number four, we talked all about competitors. And I was saying how important it was to separate yourself from the competition. If Outback and Applebee's and Red Lobster are the hits in the restaurant graph, then undoubtedly all of us are way out on the long tail somewhere. But out in the long tail, there is another graph. You need to put yourself onto one of those other graphs, into another category where you can differentiate yourself and be the hit. So, a small Chinese takeout restaurant can't succeed as the number one restaurant in the country. They probably can't even compete as the number one restaurant in their city. But they can become the most trusted Chinese takeout restaurant in the city, or at least in the neighborhood. Uh, They can become the most recommended, the most reviewed, the best reviewed, the one that lands at the top of the search results. Those are the competitions you can win. So you get there by doing the hard work, by connecting one-to-one day after day. Viewed through this lens, authenticity is the thing that wins. Being the most you you can be. Being the best version of the thing you're trying to be. Niche down. Figure out who you are and then set about the task of connecting with your 1,000 true fans, the people out there who most want what you're making. Now remember, your product is not for everyone, but it doesn't have to be. An example of this, you've just opened an ambitious, casual, fine dining spot. It's a small menu, maybe just four or five appetizers, five entrees. The menu changes drastically from night to night based on what's available in the market. What's more, you're using ingredients that many people have never heard of. Jimmy Nardello peppers and clumage serving uh, wild boar shank and totog, which is a fish, by the way. Now, you've got two different couples who wander into your restaurant. The first couple is a perfect match for what you're doing. They're young, adventurous, well-traveled. They're eager to try something new and up for whatever you throw at them. The other couple, though, is a little skittish. They're resistant. They don't like the fact that many of the ingredients are foreign to them and they seem put off by the limited menu. So as a proprietor, of course, your job is to try to win that second couple over, right? To use their objections as a way to engage with them, to answer questions, to to try to win them over. But do not ignore that first couple just because they're quote unquote easy, because they are two of your 1000 true fans. Your job during their visit is to connect with them and make sure they understand that you know that they are true fans. They're the ones who are going to return week after week to taste the interesting new dishes you try out. They are the ones who are going to bring other adventurous diners to your restaurant. They are going to connect you to other customers who may in time become true fans as well. So the essay ends with a takeaway. Kevin Kelly writes, 1,000 true fans is an alternative path to success other than stardom. Instead of trying to reach the narrow and unlikely peaks of platinum bestseller hits, blockbusters, and celebrity status, you can aim for direct connection with 1,000 true fans. On your way, no matter how many fans you actually succeed in gaining, 
you'll be surrounded not by faddish infatuation, but by genuine and true appreciation. It's a much saner destiny to hope for, and you are much more likely to actually arrive there. Kevin Kelly's essay has become a manifesto for so many marketers out there, myself included. It changed the way I look at commerce, and it forced me to reimagine what I wanted my life to be. Uh, More than that, though, it got me thinking about how brands interact with their consumers. Especially when it comes to hospitality, I think it's time we start redefining how we attract new customers and how we interact with those new customers. So I go back and read this essay once or twice every year, and I still continue to find new insights. The key, though, is this. We are just at the beginning of this new internet age, this this new marketplace that Kevin Kelly describes, one that looks much more like the old market from 300 years ago, and it's just starting. You are not late to the party. You are throwing the party. You have the opportunity right now to make your business one of the models for this new marketplace. Be the one place in your neighborhood, the one place in your town that goes above and beyond for its patrons, the place that cultivates a passionate fan base. You are trying to identify the smallest viable audience, meaning if just these people came into the restaurant, you could survive. Those are your true fans, the ones who will love you no matter what, the ones who will return week after week to see what you're working on, the ones who will bring other true fans to your dinner table. And so that's your assignment. I want you to take a single piece of paper to do an exercise, or if you prefer, I've made one for you. You can download the worksheet I've created and print it out by visiting chipclose.com slash truefans. That's C-H-I-P-K-L-O-S-E dot com slash truefans. So on the top half of the page, you're going to write down the names of at least 10 true fans that you already have. Remember, it's not about going out and getting these true fans. It's about identifying who your true fans are. So who are the people who love what you do? The people who come back time and time again. On the bottom half of that page, I want you to then tell me what they all have in common. What are the qualities that your true fans all share? And this is going to help you identify other true fans when you meet them. Then, Finally, on the back of that page, you're going to flip it over and I want you to write down five specific things you can do, five ways you can attract more of those true fans. And as a bonus, I'm going to give you eight of my own ideas to put into practice. Again, there's a worksheet. You can download it at chipclose.com slash true fans. It's three pages long. The first two pages are the exercise that you have to do. And the third page is my, uh, are my ideas uh, for how to do this done right. This exercise will reverberate out into the corners of your business, I promise. For continuing education, I'm linking to an episode of a show called Impact Theory. It's online. Uh, It's where Kevin Kelly was the guest. He sits down with Tom Bilyeu. Uh, It's about 40 minutes long, and if you liked 1,000 True Fans, you are going to love him in this interview. He is a genius. As always, I appreciate you being here. New episodes come out each and every Monday. If you are not a subscriber yet, what are you waiting for? Hit the subscribe button and stay current on all new episodes as soon as they're released. If you feel so motivated, we always appreciate ratings and reviews. We love seeing all those five stars. It just helps boost us up in the rankings, which means we get to broaden our audience. And growing this community, changing the way all of us think about our businesses is never a bad thing. Thank you again for all you do. I will see you back here next week.